Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Great to be with everyone. Thanks for being here. Very excited for debate number 28. And in debate number 28, we are going to return to a specific debate rather than an abstract one and a debate that is still alive today. But before we do that, let's start with a little poll here to see who is in the room here. Should we have religious boundaries? Option one, no. Everyone is welcome at all times. Option two, just a few. We should set moral boundaries. Option three, yes, we should set moral and political boundaries. Option four, yes, we should set moral, political, intellectual, and even theological boundaries. percent say everyone should be welcome. 33% 33% says we should say we should only set moral boundaries. <laughs> and 33% think we should set more political, intellectual, and even theological boundaries. Okay, so friends, um, uh, our debate today is between Spinoza versus the rabbis of Amsterdam. And the debate topic is allowing heresy we're preserving communal boundaries. Now, I think it's fascinating that this is actually still alive today. I want to share with you a news, a news um, uh, story that emerged, that emerged today. This was in the JTA. Uh, well, I guess it printed uh, last night, but I saw it for the first time this morning. A Jewish expert on Spinoza was named persona non grata in Amsterdam synagogue and library. (laughs) So here's what it says. More than 350 years after Baruch Spinoza was excommunicated from the Spanish Portuguese Jewish community in Amsterdam, a leader of the community has banned a scholar of Spinoza's work from visiting the community's synagogue and library. Yitzchak Melamed, a professor of philosophy at John Hopkins University was informed he could not visit the synagogue after a film director asked for permission to film Malamed conducting research in the library's archives. In a letter to the professor, Rabbi Joseph Serfati, a leader of Amsterdam's Sephardic community, told Malamed he would not be welcomed into the building, a building in which Spinoza himself may have studied as he was enrolled in the school that was once housed there. The Chachamim and Parnassim of Kahal Kados Torah excommunicated Spinoza and his writings with the severest possible ban, a ban that remains in force and that cannot be rescinded. 
you have devoted your life to the study of Spinoza's band works and the development of his ideas, Sarfati wrote, using the Hebrew words for the community leaders. He concluded the letter by barring Malamed from the building. I therefore deny your request and declare you persona non grata in the Portuguese synagogue complex, he wrote. Responding to a request for comment, Malamed said the letter was hypocritical. This is primarily a public show of zealotry. Nothing more than that, he said in, in an email. Spinoza was born in the Spanish-Portuguese Jewish community in Amsterdam and became a philosopher who laid the intellectual foundations of the Enlightenment. He was excommunicated by Amsterdam Jews in 1656 for heresy. In 2015, the community hosted a debate over whether the excommunication should be lifted, but ultimately did not lift the ban. So friends, I love this because I thought we were going to discuss a purely historical matter uh, that was hundreds of years old. Um, and yet, who knew it was breaking news today or yesterday in terms of the Spinoza ban still being in place. Okay, so let's go to our presentation here. A short presentation followed by um, a, a conversation about, about this issue. Okay, here we go. Allowing heresy or preserving communal boundaries. Okay, friends. Yeah, let's stay here. Baruch Spinoza, otherwise known as Benedict Spinoza, was a fascinating 17th century philosopher who accomplished so much before passing at the young age of 44. A Dutch rationalist of Portuguese Sephardic origin, he was one of the early thinkers of the Haskalah, of the Enlightenment movement. His ideas were met with enormous controversy as he was one of the early founders of biblical criticism, offered radical theologies such as pantheism and equating God with nature. He denied the immortality of the soul as well as divine omnipotence and divine providence, rejected the notion that the Torah is from God and that Jewish law is binding for Jews and rethought the concept of self within the universe. On a behavioral level, he stopped contributing to the synagogue and attending synagogue services. He also renounced his father's heritage in adjudication, choosing a civil court over a bait din, a rabbinic court. It was not only the Jewish community who banned him, the Catholic Church added his writings to the index of forbidden books. Many claim that Spinoza was an atheist, although nowhere in his works does he argue that God does not exist. In his magnum opus called Ethics, he argued against Descartes' view of mind-body dualism. He became so prominent after his life that the great philosopher Hegel even said of him, the fact is that Spinoza is made a testing point in modern philosophy, so that it may, really may be said, you are either a Spinozaist or not a philosopher at all. I mean, that's Hegel who said that. Now, given how many existential threats the Jews historically faced, one can understand why the rabbinic establishment would want to combat a perceived threat from within. Further, it is really difficult for us living in the 21st century to fathom how big of a threat the advent of modernity and the enlightenment was to Jewish survival. We are so removed from communal expulsions that they may only strike us as absurd. They can, however, be understood at least on some level within their historical context. 
In fact, another form of sympathy for the rabbis here emerges from the community's fear of their own collective expulsion themselves. On July 27, 1656, the Talmud Torah Congregation of Amsterdam issued a cherub, a ban against Spinoza, who was a mere 23 years old. I mean, today in America, 23 year old, like a little picture, like, yeah, it's like, they don't, haven't figured anything out. Spinoza's 23 years old. He's not like at a frat party, like getting wasted, you know, with friends trying to find his first job, you know. He is like, he's like already a leading theologian. And now I think it's worth reading the, reading the censor. So I'm going to spend the next two, three slides on the censor itself. Here's what it says. The lords of the Mahmud, the court, having long known of the evil opinions and acts of Baruch de Espinoza, have endeavored by various means and promises to turn him from his evil ways. Right? They want to make clear they've already tried. But having failed to make him mend his wicked ways, and on the contrary, daily receiving more and more serious information about the abominable heresies which he practiced and taught about his monstrous deeds. <coughs> monstrous deeds. You think the guy would be like a total moral wreck, right? But we're dealing with theology here. They became convinced of the truth of the matter. And after all of this has been investigated in the presence of the honorable Chachami, the sages, they have decided with their consent that the said Espinoza should be excommunicated and expelled from the people of Israel. Right? Not just from their community, but from Am Yisrael. He is excommunicated from the Jewish people by the decree of the angels. Wow. And by the command of the holy men, we excommunicate, expel, curse, and damn Baruch de Espinoza with the consent of HaKadosh Baruch Hu and with the consent of the Holy Kahila in front of these holy scrolls with the 613 precepts, which are written therein with the excommunication with which Joshua banned Jericho, with the curse with which Elisha cursed the boys and with all the curses which are written in the book of the law. Cursed be he by day and cursed be he by night. Cursed be he when he lies down, and cursed be he when he rises up. Cursed be he when he goes out, and cursed be he when he comes in. The Lord will not spare him. The anger and wrath of the Lord will rage against this man and bring upon him all the curses which are written in this book. And the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. And the Lord will separate him from all the tribes of Israel with all the curses of the covenant which are written in the book of the law. But you who cleave unto the Lord God are alive this day. We order that no one should communicate with him orally or in writing or show him any favor or stay with him under the same roof or be within four L's of him or read anything composed or written by him. Wow. 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 Was not unusual as the Talmud Torah congregation actually did this often. Although the language used here is unusually harsh, scholars actually say that such harsh language wasn't issued for anyone else. We see that in Nadler's book on Spinoza's life. It's also strange that while referring to abominable heresies and monstrous deeds, 
The Lords never actually state the specific heresies involved, leaving questions for us of what exactly they have in mind. Interesting enough, once Spinoza was banned by the Jewish community, he never sought conversion to Christianity, although he lived and worked and was even buried among Christians. Further, he never so much as advocated for secularism. So where does a guy like that go? It's not like you just hop off the next Brooklyn uh, train stop and find a new community. If you're out in the Jews and you're not going to join the Christians, and there is no realm of the secular, and he's not even you know, choosing secularism, where does a guy like that go to have any friends or any community or any semblance of normalcy? Where do you go to a grocery store, right? Where do you go to a library to buy or borrow a book? How do you exist in society at all, really? You, can only, you can't even imagine in our age, which is secular, pluralistic, is multicultural. So friends, I believe we owe Spinoza a measured apology. Those of us who have remained religiously committed centuries after his life have all too often failed to investigate our own creed with adequate rigor. We have replaced inquiry with exclusivity rather than engaging in the courageous interrogation and bold inquiry of the most perplexing questions of the universe. We have alienated all too often those who have come to conclusions outside our conformed norms. While I would disagree on many matters with Spinoza, I'd like to think that we'd enjoy each other's company. He was a bold pioneer ushering in enlightenment and suffered for his intellectual authenticity. Excommunicated from his Portuguese Sephardic community when he was only a 23-year-old man must have been traumatic. In our time, being excommunicated is irrelevant for the majority of us. But in the 17th century, he had no real precedent. He had nowhere to go and no one to whom to turn. Six decades ago, Israeli Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion asked the chief rabbi of the Portuguese-Spanish community to lift Spinoza's cherub. He was unwilling. Ben-Gurion even called Spinoza the first Zionist of the last 300 years. Wow. In 2012, the Portuguese-Israelite commune of Amsterdam asked the chief rabbi of the community, Pinchas Toledano, to remove the ban, but he declined. Rabbi Cardozo also asked the current chief rabbi to lift the ban. He was unwilling. One day, perhaps his ideas will be understood and his legacy vindicated. Indeed, rather than shunning him, we should be thanking him. Referring to his scholarship, Rabbi Cardozo wrote, I love heresy because it forces us to rethink our religious beliefs. We owe nearly all of our knowledge, not to those who have agreed, but to those who have differed. I consider him a secular tzaddik. He lived by his noble ideas, was dedicated to simplicity, and showed the most remarkable virtuous characteristics. He surely helped us to think more maturely about God, human nature, happiness, and the society in which we live. So if I believe his ideas did harm to Judaism, I believe the proclamation for his banishment did even more harm. Those who don't understand the subtle complexities of his ideas 
appear to ban them simply for being foreign and threatening. But are such individuals spiritually xenophobic? His philosophy must at least be understood, for doesn't Judaism thrive most amidst an open marketplace of ideas where critiques, protests, and counterpoints are not only to be welcomed but encouraged? Is not this the source of our intellectual sustenance? The ban on Spinoza has for centuries represented fear, and Judaism must embrace a bold and fearless journey forward. Judaism shuns clinging to dogmas and the, and the notions of religious exclusivity, at least the best of Judaism, perhaps. Our normative practices reflect the intellectual ideas we hold dear. We must make clear then that the precepts of Torah embrace autonomy, open thinking, hermeneutical diversity, and engaging with ideas that may be outside the comfortable framework that is all too prevalent in contemporary Jewish thought. Thus, defending Spinoza, one might argue, is defending the essence of Judaism itself. Today, our community knows all too well the importance of setting moral boundaries and work in the community. But what are the intellectual and theological boundaries? Many liberal Jewish communities would suggest there should be none. Many traditional Jewish communities would indeed embrace halachic and hashkafic boundaries, legal and ideological, to maintain a respect for communal norms. Should an atheist be allowed to have an aliyah be called up to recite a blessing on the Torah? Should one who rejects the divinity of the Torah be trusted on kashrut? Should one who rejects divine providence be hired as a day school Torah teacher? There's a huge range of approaches taken on such matters today. There must be room for these debates to take place. And when they do, indeed, they are following in the tradition of the debate of the rabbis versus Spinoza. Okay, friends, I wanna hear from you. I wanna hear from you either on this particular debate or on all of the thorny issues that emerge in response to this. Molly. Yes, yes. Hi. 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 I, I, I didn't understand the question because I can't even believe, you know, I, I think that's what's wrong with everything today is this whole polarization. It's either this has to be said this certain way or it's not valued. And I, and so, so with your poll and with this discussion, interestingly enough, I'm reading a book called The Weight of Ink, which you've probably heard of, but it's all about, um, it's all about uh, Spinoza and uh, how he, what, I mean, the Portuguese Amsterdam community, now some of them now living in London in the, six, in the 1600s when they were forced to leave. But I, I, I just think that that's what's wrong with everything today is that it's my way or not my way. So there's no room for interpretation or nuance or anything. And no, nothing is nuanced anymore. So. Okay, amazing, amazing, thank you. Okay, so let me ask, so let me ask. Um, uh, so thank you for that, Cheryl. Our, um, our, um, I, I, one of the questions I'm interested in exploring here is, I suspect as 21st century Jew, American Jews and, and North American Jews, that we have a lot of theological tolerance that 
we are very would be welcoming to people who have very different ideas of Torah, different ideas of God, different ideas of how divinity operates in the world. I wonder if our moral and political tolerance does, and if it should or should not match that. For example, it's pretty rare that David Wolpe, a conservative rabbi in LA, capital C conservative, you know, almost lost his job. I mean, I don't know the political dynamics. When he gave a Pesach teaching 20 years ago, roughly 20 years ago, where he said, maybe the exodus from Egypt, you know, did not happen. Something along these lines, basically. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And obviously that's not from his Ashkenazi, I don't say obviously, but that was not um, from his Ashkenazic members, but predominantly from his Persian members, Persian members who were not traditionally observant necessarily, but were kind of ideologically, uh, um, theologically conservative um, and couldn't imagine having a conservative rabbi who would say such a thing that they, many of them wanted that he should be removed from his job. So, so these kinds of things do still emerge, but let me ask this question. Does our, our moral and political tolerance match our theological tolerance? And here's, and here's a test case. If we had a rabbi who, who emerged as anti-Israel, not like critiques of Israel, they said, I reject there being a state of Israel. I reject Jews having a homeland. I reject Zionism as a form of racism, you know, something like this. Do we think that person should still, that their job as the rabbi of the congregation uh, should be at stake? Or let's take the opposite view also. Let's say they, they said they were extreme right on Israel. They said, we should either, ex, you know, expel all the Arabs or kill all the Arabs, God forbid, you know, or... Um, um, you know, expand the boundaries and basically take over the whole Middle East. They said something that was so outlandish on a far right. Do we, do we think that either an anti-Israel position or an extreme right position as it relates to Israel should be something that should jeopardize one standing in the community? I, okay, I see Lauren wants to jump in. Yes, please. I think, um, and I've been on... Thank God they're on a board, but I've been on some committees in a shul. I, I, I think that the rabbi has to at very least represent the, the majority feel of the community. So like any of the shuls that I've been a member of, if someone came out like mamish, completely anti-Zionist and Israel has no right to exist, so, such a person would not be able to keep their position. And, and I don't see anything wrong with that. I mean, I, I don't think the person should be censored and, you know, run out of town. But if, if your feelings are so against the way the community feels, I, I can't see that you can represent the community and be a spiritual leader. Okay, great. Now, I want to throw another one in, into the mix here. What if the rabbi declares that they're now an atheist? So listen, I've struggled with this my whole life. I've now concluded there is no God. I want you to know that when I say, you know, God's name and a, a blessing, I have a warm feeling towards the idea of divinity. It means me and you. It's just a human idea. It means that like divinity is in all of us in, in some abstract way. It's just humans are noble, but I don't believe in any kind of God, right? Um, you know, should that person still be the rabbi of the congregation? <laughs> it's a funny question because 
I think that if you polled seriously a congregation, you know, let's say a conservative congregation, because that's what I'm most uh, familiar with, that you know, you you would find a lot of people who who might be unwilling to admit that, but might feel the same way. But you know, it's like uh, our rabbis, for some reason, we've always held to you know, not for some reason, but we've always held our rabbis to a higher standard. Um, I, you know, uh, do as I say, not as I do necessarily. So I I I think the atheist thing is. Uh, that that might be something that would be that would come up for a very good discussion. Um, Israel is such a flashpoint that I don't think I agree with Lauren. I don't think that uh, uh, a rabbi would be able to maintain a position, you know, you know, saying I am totally against having a state of Israel. Yeah, so good, so good. To throw one more in the mix before Barbara jumps in, um, you know, an, <laughs> you know, another another uh, touch point. So I mean, I think Spinoza is in a middle ground. Spinoza is not just some, not just a lay leader. He's not just a congregant. He's also not a rabbi of the community, and so they're not banning a rabbi, saying you can't be a be a rabbi of our, our congregation anymore. They're saying you can't exist as a Jew. You can't talk to Jews. You can't show up anywhere. Like you are out of everything. I, you know, perhaps perhaps the closest comparison to what he would be would be like a university professor of Jewish studies who shows up in the community. Now, what, what, aside from moral violations, because I think we all agree that a child predator or rapist or someone like this, you know, should not, you know, have um, access to the community, um, you know, unless there's major, you know, confessions or reforms or whatever the case is. I mean, I, I'd love to hear your views on that also. You know, someone who is in some way dangerous, morally dangerous, if we're dealing just in the intellectual realm of viewpoints, what would a professor of Jewish studies have to say or believe or write about that would be so extreme that they wouldn't be welcome. Like what if they what if they wrote a book of Holocaust denial? Would a book of Holocaust denial um, be enough to say you're not welcome to attend the synagogue? Right? What if they what if they wrote something um, denying you know Jewish peoplehood in some sense? I mean, what is some idea that would that would cross lines? And 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 who determines that? And you know, and and what precedents do we have? Okay, Barbara, over to you. Well, you, now that you said all those things, yeah. I'm not sure what I was going to say has any relevance. But he, here's here's my thought: any fundamentalism regarding anything, it doesn't have to be Judaism or religion or anything, is always dangerous. And there are people who have feelings of fundamentalism who are in positions of authority or, or, um, or recognized as scholars or teachers. If they don't express it and they don't preach it and they don't try to, to um, create a situation where, where their students are, are required to absorb it, then, then nobody knows about it. And it's not dangerous. It's only dangerous when it leaves their innermost thoughts and becomes preaching and proselytizing. So um, as far as the community turning somebody away because of their of their thoughts and their and their philosophies, they can't do that. But when they start preaching it, then then the community has a right to do that. And certainly anybody who who preaches 
the, the Holocaust uh, never happened or that, that Israel shouldn't exist, those are not teachings of Judaism. And therefore, they don't really comply with what the, the, um, the, the requirements are for, for maintaining a position. Okay, so, so, so Barbara, thank you for that. So if somebody comes to a VBM lecture and they ask a question and impl imply within the question that they deny the Holocaust existed or you know, think that anyone is a fool if they believe in God or anyone's a fool who's a Zionist, they say something that runs against what the Jewish tradition, everyone agrees. Everyone agrees Judaism believes there's a God. Um, you know, everyone uh, understands this notion of nationalism within Judaism. You know, everyone understands there was a Holocaust. If they basically deny something so fundamental, would it, would my job be to tell them they're not they're not welcome because they're promoting their ideas there? Like, what's what's kind of the what's the line? If they keep it to themselves, it's okay. But if they speak of it, then 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 it crosses the line. That's that's what I believe because yeah. they they are using a a, a a facility which is the the appearance and the presence of people to expound on something that they believe, which is fine for them to believe it, but they they don't have, I don't believe that they have the right to um, to, to proselytize. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great, great, thank you. Yes, Scott. Scott and then Cheryl, yes please. Yeah, um, lots of questions, but one, one thing that would be helpful, um, Rabbi, is can you talk a little bit more about um, maybe for lack of a better language, what would be his sort of affirmative theological beliefs, right? Like, was he just a heavy hitting intellectual that like poked the sacred cows and challenged dogma? Uh, or did he have like a hundred relevant, interesting theological beliefs that if we all looked at that list, we'd say, yeah, you know, that looks like kind of a card carrying, you know, synagogue attending <laughs> thought thought logic you know what i mean was if he was not an atheist what affirmatively did he believe that we would consider to be not kind of secular in nature i guess yeah totally totally so wow there's so much to say there and to be sure like he is he is a um he is a philosopher and he is an ethicist in addition to be a theologian and um of there are very few Jews who um, would um, are taken seriously uh, among the broader Gentile philosophy world that emerged out of the, the uh, out of the Jewish world. I mean, obviously, there's some interest in interest in Maimonides, um, you know. But until until recent era, until the recent era, there's very few Jews that would be of any of any interest. And as I mentioned, from Hegel and from many others. Uh, Spinoza's a first-rate philosopher and, and ethicist, um, and so that work, it's, those works themselves, his, his main work called Ethics, are of significant interest to the philosophy community. Um, but on theology of self, itself, he, you're exactly right, Scott. He is not only denying uh, things; he is he is putting forth positive theology and one one that many find of interest. And I think that um, it would primarily be categorized as pantheism um, and that, and, and to be sure that would be distinguished from panentheism, 
panentheism certainly fits within the Jewish tradition. Um, pantheism does not. Um, pan, um, and, and just a reminder of the difference. Pantheism equates God with nature. God is no more and no less than the world we exist in. Essentially, everything is God, no more, no less. Panentheism says, yes, God is within everything, but also beyond it and also the creator of it. And so um, as opposed to an Aristotelian idea that there is no beginning of time, um, everything is infinite, um, and thus there is no creator. Maimonides is an Aristotelian, but he rejects that Aristotelian idea. He says there is a creation by a creator. Spinoza would likely adopt this idea that, of, that all is infinite and, um, and that there is no creator. But what we call a tree and what we call the sky and what we call our beating heart, this is all God. And so he is fundamentally religious in that he embraces divinity. Um, and in some ways, you know, it very much mass, matches Jewish mysticism um, and Hasidut in that everything is God, right? Um, but again, not only does he reject God as the creator, he also, and, and, and rejects God as being beyond nature itself, um, he also rejects divine providence. He rejects the notion of an omnipotent God who intervenes in the world. There is only nature. And so we should study science because the, the life operates by the laws of, 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 uh, by laws of science and by nature. And the more we can understand that, the more we understand. There is nothing beyond that in, in any, there is no realm of the miraculous or divine intervention. So you, so, remember, you remember like a few sessions back, you had this breakdown of like the different categories of Judaism, like cultural Judaism, Zionist belief. Like, yeah, yeah. I wonder if, if he looked at that list, what would, what would he say he was? Right, right. Yes. It's a great question. It's a great question because to some degree, you could say this is secularism. If, you, if there's no purpose in praying to a God, there's no communication with a God. A God can't intervene. The Torah is only um, a, a completely undivinely inspired work. Um, and um, what, what, what's actually left that we would call religious? Like, it's nice that you have some idea that the divine is here. But in what sense? You can't communicate. There's no intervention. There's no interaction, right? There's nothing beyond here, right? So in what sense is that in any way religious? On the other hand, one could argue this is a profoundly religious person who understands that there is something that is meta-human. There's something beyond us that is, that is the interconnectivity of all of us. And that is worth connecting to or experiencing the presence of or of being inspired by. And, um, um, and the, the, the verdict is not out on whether he is a religious or secular person. He certainly doesn't advocate for atheism or secularism. And yet he seems to not mind at all, um, at least not, not in, any, in, in any documented way, being kicked out by the religious establishment. He seems to think these people are fools. And, um, you know, and he's willing to publicly reject them, um, you know, or, or any association with them. And so I don't know where he'd fall out, Scott. The question is so great. I know that if he showed up in American Jewish life, he would be alienated from every bit of it. He would be alienated by the orthodoxies of our time, for sure. 
He would be alienated by liberal Jewish life, which he would view as as um, um, he would view as uh, non-intellectual, mm. by and large. Mm. He would certainly be disinterested in secular Judaism as like a cultural phenomenon. Um, or he would be disinterested in the political, you know, tikkun olam realm. And so I think he would probably show up at an academic conference. Yeah. He'd show up at a Jewish studies academic conference, or maybe not even Jewish studies, maybe religious studies, you know, a a academic conference. And I think it's almost like that's what that's what makes him so disruptive, right? Is that yes. Right. We like to label people, right? We like to yeah. say, well, AOC is a far yeah. left. So now, now she's safe. She's in the, you know, this slice of the Democratic Party. So now we can understand her where he's like, I, I'm not even accepting your boundaries, your segmentation, right? Right. That's an amazing thing. And I think that's something really interesting to look at with him is what does it mean to be such a paradigm shifter that you really have shifted it so much that you know you'll have no home You'll have no box. You'll have yeah. no label. Yeah. You'll only be you'll you'll only be viewed as monstrous. Like this is a monstrosity yeah. because we don't even have a way of making sense of you yet, yeah. right? Yeah. Like and, and and that that part, I really do think we should take some offense again, unless the rabbis know something that we don't over there that they didn't share, which I know no documentation of of something that he did. Um, I do think that like that even if in that time period there needed to be a ban, which I do have some sympathy for, even though I think he's deserved an apology and the ban should be lifted because of just the, the levels of fear that exist, exist in the Jewish community and how new all of this was. I do think that, that we should have a clear division between moral and theological boundaries. Yeah. And someone who causes great harm and damage to others should be viewed very differently than someone whose ideas don't, don't line up with, with traditional Jewish thought. Um, thank you, Scott. Cheryl, over over to you, Cheryl. Um, I, ju I just had a point of information question. Uh, you mentioned um, that uh, he he was ex uh, that he never disavowed Judaism. He he never became a Christian or anything like that. But even though he was buried in a Christian cemetery, which that that was my question. Maybe that's the only place that they he was allowed to be buried since he was excommunicated. Right. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I think that's right. I, I, I'm not aware. I'm obviously not a Spinoza um, scholar, but I'm not aware of anything in my readings that indicate that he requested to be buried, you know, in a Christian cemetery. But you're right. The, today, you've got the Reformed Jewish cemetery, the conservative one, the Orthodox one. You've got Christian cemeteries. You've got cremation. You've got secular places of burial to some degree, you know, you know a place without a cross or, or Jewish star. You know, but in that time, yeah, what are your options? And um, uh, and I think many Christians, certainly in that era, would de would delight to have a Jew buried in their in their space. You know, in that it's 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 almost like a um, um, uh, it wouldn't be like you know converting proselytizing exactly, but to some degree, like where there's some salvation of this soul by being, you know, embraced, you know, in, in this way. Kind of um, like an evangelical approach that if, uh, you know, the evangelicals, the evangelicals supporting 
you know, the, the return of Israel, because if the Jews, you know, if we have Israel, then the Messiah will come, you know, that kind of, that kind of thing, maybe if, if he's buried amongst us as a Jew, maybe that, you know, maybe the Messiah will come. I, I don't know. I mean, just, I'm just rambling, but it was just a question. <laughs> Yeah, no, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's a fascinating question. Yeah. And so I don't think that his, yeah, I think you're right. I don't think his burial there tell, tells us much. But once again, the fact that this is, he dies at 44, he's banned at 23. So he's got 21 years where he can join the Christian church and doesn't. Um, you know, again, the Catholic church banned his works, but, um, you know, but, um, he, 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 there's other places he could have gone. And presumably, presumably the early academics he's able to talk with, the intellectuals around he can talk with are Christian intellectuals. Um, and so, um, yeah. Shmuley? Yes. Um, I, I think that, that his being barred from, from the Jewish community is, is definitely wrong because I really believe that his place as as uh, as a leader, where the vo the people he's leading have no voice, is wrong. But his position as a leader among those who all, who do have a voice, and where there is back and forth um, uh, description of what people believe, and and where everyone has the the right to believe what they will and they can discuss it and they can banter it about that that he there's no reason for him to be, be to be um, um, banned from that kind of a situation so i think it was narrow minded of them to ban him from the community they may not have wanted him as a rabbi of a of a congregation yeah. because that's his is the only voice but i i have I have heard rabbis of congregations simply not mention God. And so who knows what they believe, but who cares as long as they're not telling me what I have to believe. Right, right. You know, thank you, Barbara. And you know, um, you know, the best way to sell books is to get a ban. I mean, I would pay money to be banned, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, your books go viral when someone bans you. Everybody's all of a sudden interested. Wow, that. If that's serious enough to be banned, this must be some serious stuff in there, right? So, I, you know, I would, I, you know, whenever I have a hater on my on my case who doesn't like some of the ideas I'm putting out there, I say, please, like, get the establishment to ban me. This is amazing, <laughs> you know. Um, so, you know, but I think you're exactly right. I think th there's the, there's the legislative and there's the persuasive, and not everything has to be legislated. I think you can engage in the persuasive realm. I think. Um, that the, it, it could have been a service to the community to been, have been able to say, like, let's, I, we want to talk about this and make the case as to why these ideas are so wrong, um, as you know, uh, and why we reject these ideas as, as Jewish scholars. And, and it could have educated the community. But again, they were too afraid to do that, maybe ill-equipped to do it intellectually to do it. Yeah, Lauren, Lauren, you going to jump in there? Yeah, um, I'm just thinking we, 21st century, we can't judge 17th century Jews in Amsterdam. I mean, this was one of the few co communities where they were tolerated. They're, um, what, two, 200 years after being expelled 
from Spain and finally finding a safe harbor. I, I, I just don't think that we can put ourselves in their place and really understand what the community was like, how much they, they may or may not have been afraid of, of the outside community. It wasn't easy being a Jew anywhere. Um, I think we really have to, you know, hold our judgment and, you know, it'd be different if it happened now, it'd be different even if it happened in the 20th century, but this was 17th century Amsterdam. It, it, it was a whole okay, different Lord, ball game. I think your point is so interesting. Can I push a little? I want to push a little. What if, what if the issue was feminism? What if, what if what we were dealing with here, uh, and, and I, I, because, because, because I, I appreciate, I appreciate your relativism, because I do think as 21st century Jews, it is very hard to understand what the 17th century rabbis are dealing with. What if we're dealing with a woman who says, I, I still want to show up, but I only want to wear jeans, not a skirt, not a dress, and I don't want to cover my hair, but I still want to be admitted. And they say, you, but you, by doing this publicly, you are a heretic and you're bad. Like, would that case be different for you or would you also say we shouldn't judge? I don't think we could judge. If in 1950s Toronto, I had walked into shul, like I, we went to an Orthodox shul, if I'd walked in in pants or if my mom hadn't worn a hat, um, yeah, I don't think anybody would like, should embarrass you in public, but somebody would definitely come to you and say, um, you want to act like that? Go to the reform synagogue. I, I, I think you have to have respect for where you are. I mean, in, in the same way, you know, like I'm really excited about all the changes that women have made. And, and I try my best to go to, a, um, we have one community that's, somewhat egalitarian i go there when i can but you know i can't expect like i wouldn't go into a chabad shul and expect them to um you know to let me read from the safer torah okay it, it's, it's it's all relative yeah you know and i and i think these relative questions you know pose a, a great intellectual challenge for us to think about moral problems in the jewish tradition because it's so easy to condemn parts of our history um, because without understanding the historical context. I mean, and, and, and I'll tell you, I mean, Barbara and I were at a Shabbat meal recently and um, there was a young person there who said, I reject Hanukkah, I would never celebrate Hanukkah, you know, because of the, the, some disgusting elements of the history of the stories. Like, if, you couldn't celebrate any Jewish holiday if, if, if the holidays were totally pure in their historical origin, I mean, history is complicated, you know? So I appreciated this person's, you know, uh, you know desire for ethical purity. And yet, um, I, I don't know how one could engage in, uh, in Judaism or really in anything, um, you know, with, with such a commitment to, to, to a certain purity and, and a lack of understanding of kind of, of history. Um, so it is difficult, it is very difficult. I just want to say after yesterday's lecture, which was wonderful, we don't really know what Hanukkah was about. We can't be 100% sure of any of it. So you celebrate what you can. But anyways, I, I, I find that strange. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, anyone else? All everything is problematic in the Torah, so. <laughs> 
<laughs> if we started not doing things because of what happened in the Torah, we wouldn't be doing much. We talk about it a lot, but everything is problematic. Yeah, so. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, once we hit a certain level of of moral and intellectual transformation, then indeed, um, the, the question you ask when you read Rashi is, what's Rashi's problem? Rashi has a problem with every word. He's struggling with every single word. And so, um, you know, it, 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 to be a Jew and certainly to be a student of Judaism, we would need to um, uh, have a commitment that surpasses just uh, a purity test of every you know, 21st century viewpoint. Um, and that is very hard for young Jews, young liberal Jews to understand today. Um, that what, why would I embrace anything that doesn't perfectly line up with the values as I hold them today? You know, that's so easy and obvious to me and I'm, I, perhaps many of us, but to others, it doesn't make any sense. Like I'm only gonna have in my life exactly what perfectly fits. That makes dating very hard. That makes dating very hard. That makes having a dating relationship, I mean, having a job very hard. That, mean, that makes any kind of community very hard if you're only gonna be associated with things you 100% like buy into. Yeah, Eddie, I, Eddie, I see you jumping in here. Yeah, um, and I, I love this conversation. So how, how do you say you would approach this? Because everybody wants absolutes and purity tests of, of concretes, but then we oftentimes forget that we are complex creatures. Do you think it's because psychologically um, we try to control what's uncontrollable? So since our life is, you know, it's a variant that can always change, we try to have boxes that we must fit in. So how do you approach the conversation to show that we're complex creatures and we live in complex lives and we have complexity in our in our day to day? I, lo I, I love this, Eddie. Thank you for that. So let me give an example. You know, I, I hear the 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 um, the, the, the friend who uh, rejects um, rejects Hanukkah, and I and I, I say this with respect uh, to her. I mean, I, I have a different a different viewpoint, but I have another friend, an academic, who just as fervently radically rejects Thanksgiving. Now we all know we all know of the dark side of Thanksgiving. Um, we also know of the beautiful sides of our of our personal experiences with family coming together and food and things like this. And I believe that both sides do a disservice. Those who only see the light and ignore the darkness, and those who only talk about the darkness and don't see the light. I believe our job as nuanced, sophisticated people is to hold the light and the darkness in everything. Everything has light and darkness. Everything, everything. And if we aren't willing to hold both, we will completely conflate reality and moral truth. And so that's true for Thanksgiving. We can talk about gen the gen genocide against Native Americans. We can talk about white colonialism. We can talk about the harms of American nationalism. And we can talk about a beautiful American spirit to be loving and giving and to share our tables and family to come together and connect and have a bond. We can talk about Hanukkah and we can talk about um, some religious fundamentalisms, and we can talk about messy Jewish history, and we can also talk about the power and beauty of Jewish resiliency and Jewish faith and Jewish survival, and the ability to be inspired by iron, by sharing light and dark spaces. And I want to be associated with and in community with people who hold the light and the dark. 
And we are surrounded by fundamentalists all around us who either have the toxic positivity, who only see the light. They want to push away all of the messy histories, all the messiness of life. Everything is just fine and good. And also the people who are so woke, and I'm not critiquing that because I'm nothing against wokeism, you know, but are so committed, you know, maybe some things against it, but, um, but are so committed to a, a purity, are so committed to a purity that um, they can find no more joy in life. They can find no more trust in another person. They have no capacity for bridge building, no capacity for allyship, no capacity for any politics that stray in any way from their own, no friends who differ from their identity politics, that essentially everything is dark and broken and nothing can be trusted, um, and, you know, unless it's my view, it's my view. It, there's such an arrogance. And so I think we have to hold it all. I really believe we have to hold it all. And that's really hard to do. But that's spiritual work, not just intellectual, to really see the light and see the dark and hold it all. Eddie, I'm curious of your response to that. If you're able to. Yeah, um, I, I, I wholeheartedly agree. Um, I think that that's one of the stances that stops us, our, our stops communities from really thriving together is to understand that fundamentally we all have flaws and issues. And I think that when we understand that, we can take away aggressors and victimization because if you're a victim, there's always gonna be an aggressor. And if we start to think that we're all fundamentally flawed and we're all gonna have a gray area uh, issues, we can really start to have these conversations where we can actually hear each other instead of toning each other out. I love it, thank you. And you know, this is a great point to end on, to move us from the history of Spinoza and the rabbis to ourselves, to, ha to have the humility for each of us to see our own flaws, our own dark spots, um, and to still love ourselves, to see our own inner light as well, um, and to treat others the same way. Of course, there's boundaries, you know, that we have in society and in our community, but to understand that all people are complicated. Everyone has dark and light within them, and it's easy to fall into a binary of the righteous um, and the evil, and to fall into the binary of those who hold truth and those who are, are, are you hold the hold, hold, you know, uh, hold lies. And I think for us to, 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 to be a little more gentle with ourselves and with others. I wish everyone a Hanukkah Sameach that we continue to honor, to bring light into dark spaces and to see that there's already light within that darkness and there's already some darkness within the spaces where we're providing light. Can't wait to see you for our debate next week. Just to give you a little um, heads up on what that topic is. Um, we are entering debate number 29 and that is um, Musar versus Hasidut. Hasidut versus Musar. Have a wonderful day and Hanukkah Sameach. We have many more VBM events this week. I hope you'll join us. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybatemadrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.